We're back into Radio Soup. It's been a while, but I always like to wait and find interesting stories. And a good friend of mine, Marty Rooley, who wrote the book Goodbye Natalie, Goodbye Splendor about Natalie Wood's untimely death and I would say murder, as Marty would say, is here to talk about not that, but something else that's touched her very dearly. 9-11's touched everyone, but you have an interesting perspective about 9-11, Marty. Yes, I do. And ironically, it relates to my published book, Goodbye Natalie, because that's the manuscript I was working on at the time of 9-11. And because it's such a high-profile story, I was working on that book, of course, with the captain of the Splendor. And we were invited for an interview in Hawaii when the boat that Natalie Wood had died upon was relocated there for the new owner. So we were invited by a TV news show to go to Hawaii and do an interview. And I had asked for the flight, first flight, connecting flight out of Newark Airport in New Jersey for that Tuesday morning, September mm-hmm. 11th, 2001. And consequently, I got into an argument with the producer and I ended up canceling the flight, which turned out to be flight 93 that went down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania on September 11th, 2001. So I didn't know that, of course, (laughs) when I was canceling the flight, that it was going to be a doomed flight. And I didn't know that until after the 911 tragedy. But I also, at the time, worked for a business magazine, a national business magazine, and had been flying a lot to all different cities, Atlanta, New Orleans, Las Vegas, from New Jersey. But usually I flew out of Philadelphia. But because I had a ride to Newark, I I had asked for that flight. But that was canceled. So I went back to work. I said, I'm not taking off next week. The interview is canceled. I will be into work. So there was a Hewlett-Packard computer uh, presentation on 10th and Broadway for the morning of September 11th that our editor of the magazine was attending, and I was the advertising manager, and she asked me to go with her. I Mm -hmm. said, no problem. And we were going very early in the morning, and I said, you know, I have never been at the top of the World Trade Center. So... (laughs) I asked her, oh, and another co-worker of ours who was older at the time, she had worked in the 1970s as a photographer in New York, so she had left her signature at the top of uh, the uh, the tower that has the restaurant windows to the world, right. and she asked me to see if her signature was still on the wall up there. And I said, all right, we'll get there in plenty of time. We were going to arrive around 8, 8.30 in the morning. Oh, boy. And the presentation wasn't until 10.30, so we were just going to go up and have a croissant and a cup of coffee. And that was the plan. So I was going to do the driving myself. I left while the sun was rising that morning to go pick up the editor, and we were going to head to New York. And all of a sudden, my gas pedal, and this was a relatively new van, started acting up, and I, I didn't know what to do. Should I go pick up the editor, go ahead and drive to New York, which is only about a half, um, an hour and a half away from my house. So I decided, nope, I'm going to go to the auto mechanic. I can't chance going to New York 
with, you know, a gas pedal that's not working. So I ended up at my mechanic, the one I normally use, and they weren't even open yet. So I sat there for about an hour waiting for them to open. They came in early. I left the van. I tried to uh, make a few phone calls to get a ride, but I couldn't get a ride home. It was only about a mile away from my house, and I was in heels, but I walked home. (laughs) I couldn't get in touch with the editor. I couldn't make phone calls. All circuits were busy, so I knew something was happening, but I did not know what. So I left the van. I got home. I tried to get online. And I could not get online. And this is when online was basically just the internet. There was no Facebook, nothing like that. There was no, it was, you could go online and internet. AOL back was popular at the time, and they had chat rooms and things like that. I had belonged to an author's lounge, so sometimes I would go there. But there wasn't really, you know, you checked your email online, basically, at that time. So that's what I had intended to do. And it was even dial-up. It wasn't like you had modems like you have today. And I could not get online. So I, I just decided, just relaxed. I didn't know what else to do. Then finally, my phone rang, and I answered. And the words, it was my daughter-in-law, and the words that she said to me were, turn on the TV, America is at war. And, you know, my initial thought was, you, you know, yeah. Somewhere off in another country, some scuds are being fired or something, you mm-hmm. know. And I just, I did not understand what she was saying. And she hung up. She really didn't elaborate, almost as if she could not talk. So I turned on the TV and I saw that plane, second plane coming around the corner to smash into the second tower, the other one on fire. I mean, I dropped back. I cupped my mouth. I, I like fell back onto the sofa. I could not believe my eyes. I, I, and nothing, nothing even registered with me yet that I was supposed to be in New York, in that tower. I wasn't even thinking in those terms. It was such right. Um, so nope, shocking. Nope. What about your editor? Did they? They didn't go either because I still could not get in touch with her. Okay. So. I didn't know if maybe she had gone without me. I had left her a message about the gas pedal. And it wasn't until about an hour later, finally, she called me and said she had woken up with a headache and was trying to call me to let me know she did not want to go. And I could, she could not call me because all circuits were busy because of everything that was happening in our country. And every, everyone was on the telephone. Everyone in the country was calling somebody. Right. So especially here in the Northeast, that was, it was just you could not use a telephone, which was frightening also. And, and then and as, at the time, I was raising my uh, grandson, too, and he was in school. I, I was so worried about that. I live near uh, McGuire Air Force Base. Oh, so you're and, worried yeah, again, and, yes. And, and so I didn't know if the, like, the Air Force Base would be attacked next. I mean, then we were hearing about the Pentagon being attacked. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then um, it was after 10 o'clock in the morning when the plane went down in Shanksville, still did not register with me. That was the plane that I was booked for. 
And it still did not register in my mind that I was supposed to be having breakfast at the top of that tower at, at approximately the same time that first plane crashed. I would have been there. I would have probably been to the top of the tower around 8.30 in the morning, and I do believe it was about 15 minutes later. Yes, it was 8.45, I believe. Yeah, I was in uh, California, and, you know, it was like 6 o'clock or whatever in the morning, or 5.30, and my fiancé's like, we're under attack. And I I woke up, because he watches the news sometimes, and when when you just wake up, you're like, I was like, what the bleep are you talking about? We're under attack. Why are you waking me up? And to wake exactly. up to this, wake up to this horror. And then um, I was working on a TV show, and one of the one of the crew members had to call everybody and say, "Obviously, we're not shooting today because um, we we worked on a lot. So Universal Lot could have been one of the terrorists' targets." Exactly. You know, I had a friend who worked in Disney, and she's like, "I'm okay. I'm you know I'm just working in Disney. I'm like, you're working in a giant building with a picture of a mouse on it. That's like yeah. basically." a symbol of America, you might want to go home. And she's like, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, so. it, it, people weren't thinking that way. But no one knew how many more planes were in the sky right. that had the terrorists on board. No one knew. So, you know, they, they were scrambling to get all planes landed. But in the meantime, it, it was just horrifying thinking, where will they attack next? Would they want to hit a school, a college? Right. Uh, there were so many targets that in their mind would have affected us to that. I mean, as if we weren't affected. Oh, right. It, it was pandemonium. It was, it was shocking. There are no words for the, the levels that, that of, um, it was so somber. You, you went from, you know, a normal day, one hour, and then the next hour, you're totally involved and you're glued to the TV and you, you just don't know where is safe and where is not safe. And, and then it was around 11 o'clock, I received a phone call from my auto mechanic and they could not find anything wrong with my van. And, wow. and, and that diagnosis is still on computer for them um, at their, that place of business, which still exists to this day, that I brought in a van they could find nothing wrong with. So I always say, what angel was on that gas pedal with me? No, you exactly. Know? It's, it's just sheer relief every time I think of it. But I, I, I actually, when I realized later that night, oh, my goodness, that was my flight, um, supposed to be my flight, that's when I, it really started to bother me. And it wasn't until a, maybe a month later I actually had dreams that I was on that airplane with all of those heroes, and they were heroes. They were, they were the first Americans who fought back against terrorism. And, and if you think about it, they were our first soldiers up in the sky on that plane. They did not win, but they did win. They won for all the hearts of America. And I would have been sitting and have known and perished with those people. And it started to affect me, and I started to have dreams about it, where I'm looking down the aisle, wondering what's going on, and the dreams would always wake me up. It was too hard to deal with. Wow. Well, I mean, they were heroes, and they did save 
wherever that plane was going to go. I think they said that exactly. one was going for the White they House. They saved many or, lives, so they did win. They 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 probably saved um, the thousands. Capitol building, you, yes. you know, or the White House. Either one of those, because the plane was turning. Probably they always suspected to head toward Washington D.C. Two planes in New York, two planes for Washington D.C. So you know who knows where they were headed, and um, but they did. They saved lives, definitely. No, I I had a college friend who uh, I went to her wedding, and her her husband uh, works. He's in the Navy, and it's funny. I visited them in Hawaii when I lived in California, and then because I thought, well, if they Maybe Pearl Harbor area or isn't isn't as safe because of the weather and everything. So when they when he went to work at the Pentagon, I thought, well, this is pretty safe, right? Pentagon. So <laughs> yeah. So when the plane hit, I called her and I was like, "What happened?" She's you know panicking. Oh my God! I, I don't know. I talked to Owens like 20 minutes ago. I'll let you know. And like you said, this was before we had really. Anyone could afford cell phones for everybody, I believe. Uh, so I'd wait hours for an email from a relative of hers saying everything was fine. You know. I know, that's frightening. My 18-year-old nephew, Scott, had just joined the Army mm. uh, about a, two, uh, probably about five months before the, the attack. And about a month before the attack, he was uh, assigned to uh, Washington, D.C., and covered the, Pen uh, the Pentagon. Oh. He was called in for cleanup. And, I mean, th this is gruesome, but I will say it because this, this is part of what we should never forget. But as he cleaned up, there were also, this is just, oh, it's too much to bear, but there were pieces of body he yes. had to put into certain containers so that possibly they could identify that, um, you, you know, there were some casualties of the Pentagon it, it, and, and of, of the plane, from the plane that crashed into the Pentagon. And it, it's, it's just, it was a horrible, horrible thing. And it was right in our backyard. That was, that was the main thing. You know, we, we had been involved, you know, in other things, but this was in our backyard. And it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of people, like, if you live in L.A., you hate New York and vice versa. But on 9-11, we were all New Yorkers. Every we're, single uh, one yes. of us. We, we were one united nation. And it, it, that is so true because it didn't matter what state you were from or, mm -hmm. you, you know, because you knew also that the next attack, you know, what did they have planned? No one knew. No one had ever heard of al-Qaeda. Right. And, um, you know, these people in caves that were planning attacks against America and uh, uh, jihad and, you know, holy war and everything that came from this. It, it was just, it, it, it stunned us because we did not have any inkling this was coming. You, you know, usually war is declared or, you, you, you know, you prepare for war right. each side. This was different. We we were at we were at war against a word, the, the word of terror. Yeah, you know we weren't. This wasn't an army we were going to fight or another country. This this was terrorists. Right. We we had no idea what was coming our way. So everyone did unite together. And and I think we were talking before we started recording. We need that now because 
We need this, that now. You know, and like like I said, I could be I could be for trucks. Attack, but it's the same thing. Right. I could be for trucks and you could be for cars. And no, cars are wrong. No, trucks are wrong. Who cares? We're all one nation. Right. It's still a vehicle. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, a, 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 a Jeep and a Chevy, they're still two different, they're still vehicles, you know, and we, we both have to share it on the road, you know. And we, <laughs> so, and yes, and, and that, that's what, what, what would happen to me after, you know, I realized, geez, I, I, I missed, you know, I was a double miss. And um, it, as ironic, uh, as coincidental as that sounds, you know, that's what happened to me. And that's scary. That's, I mean, yeah. do you, I mean, you must wake up going, that is insane. And you read it's of insane. other, have you ever I, contacted any of the other people that you've read? I mean, I know they're more yeah. celebrities, like, uh, gosh, what's his name? The guy who does family, family Guy and Mark Wahlberg, and then there's some other people who aren't as famous who said, I was supposed to be on that flight, and I, I didn't go. Yeah, I, I didn't contact anyone um, famous like that, but what, yeah, you know, my editor every right. anniversary of the tragedy, she, she knows, she knows where we were supposed to be that morning. My husband, who was dropping me off at Newark Airport because he worked not far from there at that time, you know, he, he knows he would have been saying goodbye to me for the last time. So, yeah, it, it's like, you know, a lot of people know my situation. But it's so incredulous that it's, it's you know, it seems like, no, you, you could miss once, but like twice like that, but that's what happened to me. But it was so profound that I ended up quitting my magazine job and started, I just, I was overwhelmed with this desire to capture this history in the making that I thought would get away from us. The emotion wouldn't be there a year later. It's right. still there, but you know what I mean. I, I wanted to talk to people as they were walking through those ash-filled streets of New York. I wanted to talk with people at the Pentagon and people that were on planes. So what I did do on the Internet, you could find people were leaving comments here and there about, you know, just a few sentences at groups, right. and um, so I contacted them, and then they would email me, and then we would talk by phone. I ended up interviewing close to 400 people, oh, wow. and some of the people that I interviewed, their experiences were far worse than mine. Mine was mental. You know, I was not on that plane. I was not in the tower. I, I interviewed one uh, police officer, he was a detective, he was in the tower oh. as it, minutes before it was crashing. As a matter of fact, on the level that he was in, the ceiling was already falling down because the top had started to crumble. And he knew he had to get out, but he knew there was no way out. And what he did was something that He's, you know, he he's just married, uh, just becoming a, a new father, and but he had put his hand on his gun. He was going to shoot himself, and that's because he wanted to die by his own hand. Rather, he already knew it was terrorist attack, so right. he did not want to die that way, or that they could have a building crumble on him. He almost shot himself. 
he decided not to. He saw a little sliver of light. Believe me, he was blinded, everything around him. He saw a little sliver of light, and he ran toward it. And he, um, But the building started to crumble. He just kept running. He was running through all of the ash and all of the darkness. And then finally he was able to take a breath. And then he passed out. He um, woke up in a bar. People at this bar right down the street had seen him running and fall, and they had dragged him into the bar and laid him on a table, and they were taking debris out of his mouth and clearing his nose, and he started breathing again. So they called an ambulance. Ambulance couldn't get in, so they took him down the block and met with uh, someone who got him to a hospital, and he survived. But mentally... He, he couldn't go back to the job. Well, yeah. um, you know, there, there's that uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome and PTSD. He suffered from it. So it took months. I spoke with him throughout the six months before he even went back to work. And so that's one story. But, but just think before you go to another story, Everyone who helped him, that's what's great about this country. Like, they didn't know who yeah. he was, and he was a police officer, and they just saw him, and he collapsed. Yeah, and, and they he just, was in plain clothes. They had no idea who he was. Right. They just, oh, there's a stranger who needs trouble. And, you know, who knows? I'm, I mean, I'm hoping that we all hope if, God forbid, a situation ever happens like that or, you know, a building crumbles or there's some kind of disaster, that you would help your fellow man, not just leave him and, like... It, Exactly. You're running for the hills. Exactly. That, that makes me think of this older gentleman I interviewed named Jim. He was uh, driving down the parkway and saw everything happening. He saw the plane come in. He drove toward the towers, but you got to a certain spot where they wouldn't let you go any further. So he got out of his truck. And he ran, this is just an everyday person, he ran toward the towers, and they weren't collapsed yet. He saw the fires, he saw, you couldn't really, when you look up, see the people that were at the top hanging out the windows. Right. But then he started seeing something in the air, and he didn't know what it was. And then he realized it was bodies, it was people who were jumping they were trapped like animals by fire and what an animal would do would be jump rather than burn and that's what people did they were jumping from the top of the towers to their own death rather than let that fire take their life and what he wanted to do jim was to go uh, rescue the bodies there's no way anyone would survive a fall right. like that but he wanted to try to pull them and put them together so that families, you know, would have their family member to bury. But then the police arrived and the fire trucks arrived and they wouldn't let him do it. They said they promised him they would do everything they could and that they would take care of it. But then, of course, it wasn't soon after that that the buildings collapsed. But this man, he was traumatized. This was, you know, I spoke with him for months after the, that tragic day, and it, it, people could not shake this from what they witnessed and what they saw and, and had to deal with from their minds. It, it, it took a long time. 
I, yeah, I can't even imagine of being there. I know, um, like I said, I worked on a show, Crossing Jordan, when this happened. So I believe a week later, we had a moment of silence on the set. And everyone, you know, we all said a prayer and everything. And I believe one of the actresses, Catherine Hahn, who was pretty not well-known at that point, and now she is, I think she was in New York at the time, and she was just bawling. I mean, there was yeah. nothing but silence and tears. And I remember thinking... You know, this This is what being an American is about, is remembering those we have lost. Even if you weren't there. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, I Even think... Even if you weren't there. Through TV, we were all there, but, you know, having somebody who... she I don't know where she was in New York, but I'm sure she ran for her life if she was anywhere close to downtown. If you were close, you were running for your life. That That's for certain. And a lot of the people that from the city that I spoke with, they said there was an odor... Yeah. Um, you know, within the streets for several days. First of all, the burning you know, and the sound, the people that were so close to the buildings when the planes hit, the sound, they said, was just one of the most oddest type, excruciating metal against metal type of sound you could ever imagine happening. And those are the things that you know, I wanted people to tell me about, you know, right. you, you know things that you're not going to hear in the news, you, you know, 10 years later, 20 years later. And, and the, the reason I didn't publish that book as soon as I, I, I wrote it, it's a virtual journal of the first year after the September 11th. Mm -hmm. But my agent said, you know, this, this is, he was very excited about it at first. And then he said, you know what? This seems like something that would be good for 10, 15 years down the road when people do need to remember. But the, and, and I agreed with him. I, I totally agreed. I said maybe even 25 years if I would be alive, and thankfully <laughs> I am. But, yes. you know, so now I'm, I'm pulling it out and I'm, I'm going to submit it because even what I, after years of not reading it, some of the things I'm reading are surprising me that I captured. And um, everyone who experienced it is so happy and still alive today, so happy that every anniversary they read those names of everyone who perished on mm -hmm. that day. With They ring the bell as they say their name in New York. Well, I think and that, well, that is such a kind thing to do, never forget. And I, I hope that happens 100 years from now. Well, wasn't, wasn't this year they said they weren't going to do it and that there was such a public outcry? Or even just, yeah. even just lighting up the, the yep. lights where the towers were. Like, how can you not? How can you not? And it, it's just such a, a generous way to remember all the innocent lives of that day. And, you know, and, and then even... And the heroes. Those who escaped, I mean, you right. know, who got out of the towers. Thank goodness there was time for some people to get out of the towers because this death toll could have been over 10,000 people, and if not. But those people, they, they weren't unscathed, that's for certain. They, you know, it hit them after they made it home safely what they had just gone through. You know, they were watching it on the news, and... You know, oh my God, they were there. <laughs> it's it's just you know I wasn't even close to it. Yeah, how far? I had this feeling. You how know? far away do you, do you live from from there at the time? 
Only about an hour and a half. Okay. But but that's what I'm saying. Like I never even. I only got a mile away from home before my gas pedal acted up, and I never even made that flight. And I'm I'm you know I'm happy that I didn't, but it was hard to stop thinking about those who weren't able to escape it and what they went through, you know, the people that were at the top of the tower calling their loved ones, you know, it's on fire. I can't get an elevator down. Um, hopefully they'll be able to rescue us. No one thought those towers would fall. Right. You know, and, and, and here's what drives, here's what drives me crazy about people we're just going to tap on this for a second about conspiracy theories, you know? Uh, yeah. That's how it all started, yeah. Well, nobody builds a building to withstand a plane flying into it. Exactly. I, I mean... Exactly. <laughs> but I, I studied a lot about that because um, one of the things that really bothered me was when the conspiracy theories started <sighs> because... Um, I, 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 I don't care what anyone would ever say to me. I would never, I just can't believe America would do this to America. Right. You know? And uh, so I did study a lot about, so one of the main things was the structure of the building. Well, it, it could not have imploded that way. So I truly did a lot of research on that. And yes, it could implode the way that those particular buildings were built. And now, when they redid the new building, it's done a little differently. Right. So, you know, but that plane took up when that plane went through that wall. It, 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 there was no way the top part could survive. Right. And when that top part gave in, it was too heavy for the bottom part to survive. It's kind of just, like science right there. I don't know. Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's very <laughs> scientific. <laughs> it's very scientific, but those buildings did implode and they crashed. And it's it's just amazing. And while they were falling, there were still people on the uh, bottom floor mm -hmm. that were still running from the building and they did survive. So, you know, you, you can run through ash and all that debris in the air, you know, only for a few minutes. But if you keep running, you, you know, you, you just might be able to escape it. And many people did. You know, I interviewed several that did. They made it out of the ash and smoke and everything else. They, and thank goodness they did. They must have a lot of survivor guilt, I can, I can imagine. Oh, the survivor stories are what fascinated me. But, um... Yeah, you know, and then, then I spoke with people. There was this one woman, her uh, co-worker and friend was on the very first flight from um, Boston mm -hmm. that crashed into the North Tower, and she was supposed to have been on the flight with him. It's just the way people were affected by it. But, you know, she, in her mind, uh, his name was Bob Jalbert, and she said that Bob would have helped anybody on that plane to calm them down, to help them. And then I interviewed someone who was on the 79th floor and saw that first plane coming in oh. so closely that he could see, actually see some of the faces of the passengers, and he said they were terrified. Oh, I so, can imagine. Yeah, and... and, and how could anyone ever forget this? 
And these are the things that, you, you know, you think of it, all right, it's Patriot Day now. Yeah, you know, like a like a Labor Day or a Memorial Day is so important. You know the meaning of it, right. but the meaning of this, there's so much connected with it that I I just you know I just hope that it is never forgotten. You know, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, to have this information available, which you know there's plenty out there about 911. Right, but there's there's that many more stories about it too there are a lot of stories yeah i i found something on the internet on on that page that i was telling you about this uh i don't know what it was it's about the survivors and the the victims of 9-11 and i thought it was interesting it says i miss 9-12 i would never ever want another 9-11 but i miss the america of 9-12 stores ran out of flags to sell because they were flown everywhere People were Americans before they were upper or lower class, Jewish or Christian, Republican or Democrat. We hugged people without caring if they ate at Chick-fil-A or wore Nikes. On 9-12, what mattered more was what united us than what divided us. I mean, we need more more of the date. We don't need another 9-11. We need 9-12. We every single day. And that's why I believe that remembering these type of things, you know, individual stories and the, the mood of the day, the somberness, mm-hmm. that will unite us. I, I remember going into a convenience store uh, and, and another store a couple days after 911, and patriotic music was playing. People were flying flags from mm-hmm. their cars driving down the street. Everyone had a flag out. People were the United States of America. I dreaded the thought of, you know, that dwindling and it falling apart. Mm-hmm. And I hope that it wouldn't, but gradually, you know, it became, and, and I, to this day, <laughs> blame social media oh, yes. for a lot of the divide. It, it's, it's part of it, because everyone's, you know, posting what they post, different than the other person, and it just gets things going, but... The unity we had after nine one one, I know. I, I just don't think I will ever see again in my life, and I'm happy to have seen it. I really am. Everyone was so nice to everyone in stores. I remember getting a cup of coffee where, and I don't know if you're familiar with Wawa convenience stores, but they're no. real big in the in the Northeast. And everyone just gathers around, grabs their cups. No one says, excuse me. That, but people that day, they were standing back. Oh, you go first. No, you go first. Oh, thank you. Here, here's some sugar. <laughs> it was just everyone was so nice to everybody. I, I, it, was, it was something to see and experience. It really, truly was. I know. There's, there's not a lot of that now. I mean, even, and I, I do agree with you with social media. Like, before the coronavirus said I was working in a coffee shop and I always am surprised when I see a child reading a book instead of holding a laptop or an, mm-hmm. an I, I mean an iPad or a phone or something and I was like wow they're reading a book mm-hmm. you know and, and it's it, it, it's changed you know everyone has their um, smartphone in their hand nowadays from any age any age on up you yes. see it and you know I, I can understand you know the children having you know, learning that uh, tech, technical, you know, iPads, phones, right. and now learning is being done. You know, with the because of the virus, you know, through Zoom and, and virtual learning. So it's good that they learn the technology of everything. 
but still, there's nothing like a book. Exactly. Now, I'm so happy my kids that are all adults, <laughs> they are so big on, you know, giving their children books. I love it. I love it. You know, they let them have their time with the internet or a phone, but it's limited. They love books. And you don't see that much today. You no. just don't. And believe me, those kids, <laughs> they're doing what adults do, too. They're on those phones, and they're having their little spats with other people. <laughs> I agree. There's some friends of mine who are parents who don't allow their kids to be on Facebook or anything like that. And I kind of agree with that when you're in high school. Because there's, yeah. I know there's a lot of bullying. I mean, there was a lot of bullying when you and I went to school. I can't even yeah. imagine, you know, have someone taking a picture and being, ha ha, there's Mel and she's dress is funny or she has glasses, yeah. four eyes, blah, blah, you know. It, uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, I, it's, it's a problem. And, and there's ways to curtail that type of a problem. And, and it's just, you know, limit, limit the time and um, be a parent and try to be a kid who, you know, learn something besides what you're going to see on your telephone. And go outside. You know? Remember when your parents would tell you to go outside and you're like, ugh. Now it's yeah. like, yes, I understand. Send your kids out. I mean, be safe. Don't, you know, wander somewhere right. where you don't know. But Exactly. Go outside. This is a library. <laughs> they still have programs <laughs> that are so nice for kids. You know, even, you know, Lego programs, all kinds of things. Movies and... Um, Bookstores have I, the same thing as I well. I loved hanging at a library when I was a, a kid. And it, it's... it's I, I'll tell you, if I had the opportunity to be in a library or a phone, um, <laughs> I would prefer the library. It, it's so fascinating, and kids don't know that these days. You know, that feeling you have when you crack open a book and you mm -hmm. look for something instead of, you know, just scrolling by or punching it in and... Um, you know, I'm I'm not downing technology. Well, Believe plus me. you don't even it's know. Fascinating, if... but it, it's it's. Uh, you, I, I I attribute it for half the uh, dissension in the world right now. Well, and plus you don't know. Someone could go in and hack Wikipedia. So imagine if you're doing a paper and you use whatever website, let's just say Wikipedia, for right, and somebody hacks it and it's wrong, and then you get your term papers. Right. Incorrect. Well, Wikipedia, it's done by regular people. Anyone right. can contribute to it. So you don't know that it's factual. <laughs> you don't know, you, you, you know, any information you get from Wikipedia could be from uh, your neighbor down the street that put it on there. Right. Well, I'm just using they, that know, as... They usually check it, but sometimes they don't get to it for seven months or, you, you know, so you don't know what you're pulling from Wikipedia. Right, or, any, mean, or any website. There's plenty of misinformation on Wikipedia I have found. Yeah, I'm just using that as an example. That was the first yeah. thing that popped in my mm -hmm. head. But yeah, I remember using it. Now, now I feel like we're going to go like, oh, remember when I was a kid, young lady? Uh, yeah. Encyclopedia Britannicus. Hey, there's pluses and minuses on both ends of it. <laughs> Very true. I, I love the new generations and what's at their fingertips. Uh, you, you know, um, I think it's wonderful for them. But here's the key. Use it wisely. That's that's the whole answer to anything. Very true. Use it wisely. And things would be different. And and believe me, I'm guilty of it. Sometimes I 
get, you know, see something that I, I just can't hold back. I want to, <laughs> but I can't. So well, I'll say something. And usually what I say, believe me, I, I, I'm very careful. But then it just brings in someone else. And but someone it's, else it's, it's, and funny, else. it's funny when we're on social media, like you would say something to somebody that you wouldn't say to their face. Or like if you and I are True. having an argument and it's just like, you know, I say something and I figure that's the end of it. Two days later you respond. I'm like, uh, like in, in real life, would you do that? No. I, like for, for example, I wouldn't, point. I probably yeah. wouldn't remember what we argued about two days later because we're friends and it's just like, all right, whatever. Well, that's over with. So we'll just jibber jabber about something else. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a good point, though, that you just made. A rule of thumb that people could have, if you wouldn't say it to their face, don't say it on social media. <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. That's good. I like that. <laughs> because there's sometimes I write something I regret, and, you, you know, it's there. So even yeah. if you erase it, it's, it's there. You said it. You can't take back words. Exactly, so. and I think a lot of... Kids don't realize that once it's out there, I mean, people can copy it and, you know, I don't know, I don't know all the tech technicalities about the internet and how things were saved, but you can, you know, you can post something and it's pretty much there forever. And, you know, even if at times when you see two sides of an issue, but at one particular point, you're only writing about one, but you do see the other side, which you you intend to mention a little later, you, you know, right away people pay you for um, where you're at. They think they know you from one thing you said. And right. so people get distorted uh, images and um, ideas about people, too, and people they don't know because lots of people have friends. Yeah, you know, that was one thing that was hard for me when I interviewed people about 911. Basically, I found most of the people from the internet. Mm-hmm. And how do you get someone to trust you instantly? Right. You know, and that was a hard thing. And who am I to be contacting this person and asking such a personal question about such a drastic event? And but the trust level that existed after 911 I doubt we will ever reach again the trust level was there they were thanking me for reaching out because they they were so uh pent up that they wanted release they wanted someone to talk to i felt like a lay person psychologist for a therapist <laughs> for months after that and and i would always tell everybody hey i'm just a regular person who was in on this too and you know could have been in the building or whatever i said please you know don't um, i never gave advice i just right. listened and that was what was so needed at the time to just talk and listen to one another and everyone was willing to do that imagine that today yeah and, and i'm looking on the internet because i remember seeing this documentary about the lady who said she was in 9-11 and faked it why would you do that either oh that's terrible i didn't know about that she, yeah. she what was that story um she i think she just wanted her name was Tanya Head. I think she just wanted, she's one of those people like Stolen Valor where she wanted attention. And then oh. people started realizing, uh, I don't, I mean, there were a lot of people in New York that day, but I don't remember you being there. You didn't, you weren't, you know, 
I don't, I don't get that either. Like, no, such a horrible time. Why would you, why would you want to be, why would you want to fake that? I don't get right. people. Right, yeah. And that's why, you know, that's, <laughs> that, that's one thing with me too, because, you know, here, almost on the plane that crashed, and then going to be in the tower, you know, it, it just sounds so incredulous, like, that people wouldn't believe that part. Exactly. But as I said, you know, I have proof of it. But what <laughs> I'm saying is that I, I felt almost unqualified just because of that two-time miss that, you know, who am I to talk about this? But I was living with that survivor-type guilt right. that a lot of people had. You didn't have, even have to be there. The entire nation felt some type of survivor guilt when they saw, you know, when they realized what had happened to so many people that were on the planes and in the tower and at the Pentagon. You, you know, they felt, they actually felt the pain they did. for the, those people's families and for those people, what they went through. Uh, yeah, and then I remember seeing, like, the list of names and stuff, and uh, I'm, I'm a huge hockey fan if nobody knows that by now. But a couple of the people who were on, I think, Flight 175 were scouts for the LA Kings. And I, you know, I don't know these people, but for me, that was, that, that brought it closer to home. I mean, mm -hmm. you know. I understand what you're saying. Like, uh, there was somebody to bring it home for everybody. Right. That was the thing, because these were innocent passengers. But the one thing I did see, just, you know, a little, um... Uh, back and forth at that time, you know, that I see happening today, too. People get mad at celebrities or sports figures and things like that, but the celebrities, they did come together right away and, and did all those uh, charitable benefits oh, yeah. and donated all of that money, and sports figures did it, too. And, you know, they... So let, you know, wealthy, the elite people, there's good and bad in any category in right. life. But most of them, they're very grateful for their status. And they have a heart and they see and, and they have empathy for when people go through a tragedy of, of the likes of 911. And they did come together and they did try to help. And, you know, they, they do it with all uh, national crises. So I'm not one who gets that mad at them, you know. Right. I, I, I'm not mad at them just because, you know, they've had a successful life. And no one should be, ever be mad at anyone because they worked hard or even if they had a lucky break and it ended up a successful life. That, that was their fate. That's where they are. You exactly. Don't be mad at them because something bad happened somewhere else. Yeah, that, that's how I feel about that. I agree. And if, say, Celebrity A, who, who plays basketball, donates to one thing and not to the other, that's their money. They can do whatever they want. Right, so they're donating. The point is, they're, you know, they're giving somewhere. You know, every, and everyone back then, oh, everyone wanted to donate blood. How many people were donating? They, they actually had a surplus of blood donations, the Red Cross at that time. How wonderful is that? Yeah. People were donating $5, whatever they could spare, trying to get water and supplies and food to New York, where, you know, the main, the, you know, ground zero. They wanted to help out as much as they could. They turned the Jacob Javits Center, which I had visited many times for conventions, into the makeshift hospital like they did 
you know, these days for the pandemic. Right. So, you know, people people come together. I remember there was in trouble. There was that a, was a nice thing to see. Right. There was a um, Wisconsin fire department who drove all the way to New York just to make brats for the fire. Yeah. And, and, and I'm sure to help out, but, you know, yeah. I remember seeing that. It's, it's, it's amazing. It really is. You know, a lot of the motorcycles, the buildings had fallen on the the police department's motorcycles. Mm-hmm. So about a month later on Staten Island, there's a Harley-Davidson um, center. Um, I went with my sister-in-law and met a couple of the people who had escaped the tower that day. I was supposed to meet the cop who almost shot himself that day, but something happened and he couldn't be there. But anyway... So we saw all of the uh, riders from halfway across the country bring all of the Harley-Davidson motorcycles in to donate to the New York police force. That was a beautiful thing to see. Donate it. Yeah, we need we need nine twelve. Yeah, we need nine twelve. That's I I like that saying. So what what are you going to call your book? Do you know? Yeah. Oh, my I well, I always called it Never Forget, and mm-hmm. I haven't changed it yet. I don't know if I will or not. It was the title that stuck with this story. Right. And so right now it's just called Never Forget. How many pages do you have so far? 300. <laughs> and I have to, I, I have plenty that I haven't added. Right. Which I may or may not. I might condense it and add a little more, so... But it was 300 pages of constant writing and then some stories in separate files. So I really have got to pull it all together and present what I think would be the most meaningful at this point. Well, I think all of it is meaningful, if you ask me. Yeah, it is. But they, I think I can only submit 450 pages max oh. <laughs> for so. Will you have you know. photos as well? I have photos that I took when mm-hmm. I went to Staten Island, and I had a few people donate photos to me who were there, but there's actually a complete file of photographs that you can use for free oh. that they've, you know, like a news agency, if right. they ever want to do an article about this, or books or anything, that they have standard stockpile, that's what it's called, photographs that you can use. So I, I would like to use some photographs, but some of the people I interviewed sent me photographs of them and some drawings that people made, mm. brought out a lot of poetry and artists, you know, their feelings, they came out with, you know, that in the way that it worked best for them through drawings and right. it, it was it was quite a time. And I just, I, before I wrap up, I would just like everyone to remember, too, a lot of people may have forgotten this, but that night, the entire Congress walked out and stood on the steps of the Capitol building and sang God Bless America together. I don't remember that. <laughs> you don't remember that? I don't remember Wow. Well, that's something... That says it all. Could you yeah. imagine that today? No, everyone would be like, I want it in the key of E. No, I start. No, you start. Ugh. Yeah, they sang beautifully, too. Mm-hmm. The entire Congress stood on the steps of the Capitol building that night and sang God Bless America together. 
Yeah, I can't imagine that happening now. Mm-hmm. I, you know what? I wrote about it the night it happened, but since we are finished, I am going online, talk about online right at your fingertips, and I'm going to look it up just to see. If, <laughs> you know, because you said, I'm surprised you don't remember that. That, that just, it gave me chills. Yeah. I remember watching it as it happened, and I had, the hair stood up on my arms. It, it gave me chills. It really did. Whether you think it's corny or not, or you think it's beautiful, you I, know, there's a lot of people who think, oh, that's, that's strange. You know? But to me, and, and I didn't know how I felt. I just know it gave me chills. Well, yeah. it was probably, I'm imagining it was spontaneous. They were probably like, let's go outside and do this. Okay. Yeah, it was spontaneous. They walked outside and sang together. It was wow. beautiful to see. It really, truly was, because the least thing you would expect, you know, you would expect, okay, the government, they're getting together, they're going to do this and do that immediately. They, they, they felt it, too. They walked outside and sang. And, and, and it, it just has, to this day, it has such meaning to me. Yeah, if you find that, you'll have to uh, post it on Facebook. So I yeah, I, I will. And that, that's a good idea. You know, I remember watching it. I remember it happening. But I'm going to go online and see if there's, you know, anything about it on there. I hope they captured that. Those were the things that I wanted to capture. Right. Because I didn't think down the road people would remember. Or, and, be, or believe I, it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> wow. So, so when do you hand in your, your book? You're still... Well, uh, probably, I'm hoping to by January. Okay. And then next year is the 20th anniversary. Right. So I'm oh, hoping I might be able to have it ready by the 20th anniversary, which I think is a, an appropriate time and a good time for, you know, you know, because a new generation knows nothing about it. Right. Uh, you know, except that it's Patriot Day and what they see on TV that day. Or, so I don't know if it's true, but I read also that millennials or whoever don't have never heard of the Holocaust. What are we teaching children in high school or any kind of I know. School? I don't, I don't I know. know if I really believe that. I mean. Yeah, I, I find that hard to believe, too, because the, there's certain things you must learn. Mm-hmm. You know, just just to, you know, not repeat or at least know how it was handled when it happened and um, to learn from. Yeah, I, I, I always laugh at the younger generation when you tell them something and they're like, well, that was before my time. I'm like, have you heard of the American Revolution? That was before your time. You know about that, though, right? Like, you are Exactly. <laughs> well, I, re- I remember many years ago I did this. I was at a party one night. I was in my 30s. But I was trying to make a point that, you know, people, what, what, do we learn, what, what do people remember from their history books? And history is a very important subject in schools. Yes. So I, I went around individually. No one knew what I was doing. It, and I started asking people, they were like 24 years old on up to 35 years old, um, who won the Civil War? Nobody got it right. <laughs> Nobody. I must have asked 15 people at that party. Between the ages of 25 and 35, no one knew who won the Civil War. I was so flabbergasted, so upset. The next day I was at work, or that Monday, I was a Saturday night party. That Monday morning when I was at work, I asked some older people I worked with. Of course, they all knew. But then I was so upset and trying to explain that these younger people don't know. I I was only about 35 myself at the time. And so I said, I, I, I got on the phone. 
and I called my teenage son, and I said, Matt, I, I said, who won the Civil War? And he said, come on, Mom, you don't know who won the Civil War? I said, no, no, I know, I know, I need to know that you know. And um, as soon as he got home from school, I made that phone call, because I never even thought to ask my own kids. And um, he he knew. He, you know, he said, Mom, the Emancipation Proclamation, da-da-da, and he gave me the, the whole rundown, and I just said, I'm just so glad. Yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> and and he, he really didn't know what Matt knew, but he did say the North, so I gave him credit for that. <laughs> At least he knew that, that much. <laughs> you know, and, and this was years ago. This was a couple decades ago. Yeah, crazy. Do you have any um, websites or anything that you want to leave with us before we head out? Well, the only um, what I have is my Natalie Wood page, okay. which is the, because I am also working on another book for that since the case was reopened. You are busy, which, busy. Yes, I've been very busy because after my first book was published about her death, mm -hmm. they still did not open the case. So I got busy on that and put together a package, which I sent to the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, and it did the job. They reopened the case in 2011, and pretty much I have the results of it, even though there may not be a courtroom, that they did name her husband the person of interest in her death. Right. So I want to give her, Natalie Wood, her closure. So right. I have my Natalie Wood homicide case page, and that's through Marty Rooley on, um, if you go to my page. But it's called the Natalie Wood homicide case. All right. We'll... And uh, that's my page, and I will open another page now for the 911 yes. story and get that going. So... And not to promote it before I send my book off, but to help people remember these things that I really appreciate you talking with me about. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I found a page on Facebook, and I just started looking, reading through all the people, all the memories of the people who passed away. Yeah. And it's just, That's the, you know, and I do want to visit the, the memorial at some point. Yes. I, I only went once. Where I haven't been and intend to go is to the Shanksville Memorial. Mm -hmm. And I want to do that before I send this manuscript to my agent. And I will do that. And any, anything that's online about 911 is worth reading. These, are, these stories are very important. And there's, there's a lot to, um, to be learned from it. And there's also a lot to feel from it. Yes. And that's what's important today, that unity. To get that feeling of unity back would be just such an amazing thing right now. We need it. We need another 912. We need it. Yes, we do. Thank you so much for joining me today, Marty, on Radio Soup. And uh, we'll have this up in probably a day or so. And thank you very much, Mel. I really appreciate you having me. Oh, you're very welcome. On the mountain, to the prairies, to the